0: As we come to God's word now, our scripture reading this morning is from Second Timothy chapter 1. As we begin a study of Paul's last will and testament, as it's been called, uh, written during his second Roman imprisonment shortly before his death, where history tells us he was beheaded under Nero. He wrote this uh, during that time as his death was drawing near, uh, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and yet also to the whole church, this is the last letter that Paul leaves us. Written, as Calvin said, not merely in ink, but in his life's blood. I'll read just the verses one through five, Second Timothy chapter one and page eleven eighty-one. In your pew Bibles, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child. Grace, mercy and peace. From God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve in you as well. This is reading of God's word. Beloved, I want you to imagine that you're Paul languishing in some deep, dark prison cell awaiting your death because of your faithfulness to the gospel. And you're writing your son in the faith one last letter, hopeful that you might see him again but not sure. After you first greet him, what would be the, the first words that might come to your mind? Perhaps for many of us, words of, of self-pity, likely words focusing on our situation. And yet for Paul, the very first words that he speaks are, I thank God. He is thankful for the work of the gospel in the heart of his son in the faith. Even as he awaits his death, he is filled with thanks for Timothy, which he remembers constantly in his prayers. A thankful to God for the sincere faith of young Timothy. And throughout this book, in these four chapters, he's going to, to, to get into specific instructions for Timothy, uh, namely to uh, guard the gospel, to suffer for the gospel, to continue in the gospel, and to proclaim the gospel. But before he gets into all of that, he simply gives thanks. Likewise, Jesse, Josie, James, Sophia, Jacob, Dylan, and Lauren, while there is a a charge that we give you this day to continue steadfastly in the gospel that you've just professed, we first of all thank God for the work of the gospel in your hearts, you have desired to profess your faith in Jesus as your prophet, priest, and king, your savior, and your love. As with Paul here in verse 3, we give thanks. What we want to do this morning as we, we look at Paul's thanksgiving for Timothy in these first five verses of 2 Timothy 1 is, is, is let these verses and the thanksgiving that, that Paul has for Timothy inform the thanks that we give to God for you. As you thank him, first of all, for your faith in the gospel, verses one to three, that your faith is a gospel faith. Um, second, that it is a God-given faith implanted by God himself, as we see in verse three. i I'm um, Third, that it's a genuine faith. And In your case, it's also a generational faith. We uh, give thanks to God for your genuine faith god given gospel faith that is the same as that of your parents, and pray that God would continue to confirm you in it for his glory and so, first of all, think about how paul thanks God for timothy 's gospel faith and Paul will often at the beginning of, of his letter in his his opening greeting uh, sort of tip his hand to the the main themes that he 's going to unfold throughout the letter and that 's certainly the case here where uh, Paul is, is going to tell Timothy throughout this book of all the things that he must suffer. And Paul himself is awaiting his death. And so he first of all reminds Timothy that this gospel of which he is a servant, this, this gospel that he'll task Timothy to proclaim throughout this book is the promise of life. Uh, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus according to the promise of life, of that which he is tasked with proclaiming and now passes on to Timothy, that which he gives thanks for in Timothy is the promise of life. Paul is here in this, this very brief introduction reminding us that this gospel is, first of all, a promise, a statement of what God has done And will do not, first of all, what we must achieve, but what God has done. And what God has done is is give life. This gospel of which Paul speaks is good news for dying sinners that God has promised life. In fact, John Stott says the whole Bible may fairly be described as a divine promise of life from the first mention of the tree of life in Genesis 3 all the way to the last chapter of Revelation where God's people eat of that tree of life and they drink the water of life freely. The Bible, from beginning to end, is the unfolding divine promise of life. That's what was first promised to Adam in in the garden. And what theologians call the covenant of works, the covenant of life. God said, obey me and receive life. That's, that's the, the inverse of the threat. That if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. The, the um, opposite of that, or the, the, the flip side of that, is obey me and receive life. And fellowship with me in paradise. But of course, Adam failed to do that. And so God came in grace and he promised a second Adam, our Lord Jesus, who would obey where Adam failed and yet die in his place in ours so that we might receive the life that is rightfully his. The Bible is the unfolding promise of eternal life now made known through the gospel of our Lord Jesus that the one who has earned for us life has come and died that we might live. Has been raised that we might share in his life. And, and Paul says that this is the essence of the good news that he entrusts to Timothy, that God has promised life to dying sinners. If you think about it, a rather fitting message, as Paul lies in a cold, dark prison cell waiting his death, yet assured of eternal life with his Savior. And so to Timothy, though Paul will tell him that he must share in that suffering. You look at, at 1 verse 8 where he says share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Or 2 verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Or 3 verse 12 where he says that all who live a godly life will be persecuted, even though Timothy is likewise going to share in this suffering and persecution, Paul assures him of eternal life in the face of that suffering, underscoring both his and Timothy's end-time hope in the face of death. That's the same hope with which you Seven young people have been charged this morning. Those precious words that we read from 1 Peter 5, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This gospel is the promise of life. A life of suffering now, but eternal glory with Christ our Lord. And as Paul mentions in verse 2, this eternal glory and promise of life is an act of divine grace. As uh, Paul identifies himself in verse 1 and then greets Timothy, his son of the faith, his, his very first word after that is in grace. This is not just a throwaway greeting, but this is a word bursting with meaning. It speaks of the fact that this promise of life that Paul has just mentioned is a gift. That, as we said, Adam and all of us in Adam rightly deserve the pronouncement of death because of our sin. But God in his grace condescended to make a promise. You recall how the Belgic Confession speaks of that. It says, our good God, seeing that man had plunged himself into physical and spiritual death, God set out to find him and to comfort him with the promise of his son, though man was trembling all over and fleeing from him. This promise of life is completely, by divine initiative, an act of undeserved grace, which, as we see in in verse 2, proceeds from God's mercy. As Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace. It's interesting, this word mercy is actually um, a sort of unusual word in Paul's greetings. Usually it's just grace to you and peace. But here, as in 1 Timothy, Paul adds mercy. And here he's pointing us to the source of God's grace. Why is it that God should favor us? Why does he show us grace? Why are we found acceptable to him? Calvin says, in asking this question, we should examine ourselves and confess our wretchedness, the awful depths of misery found in us. The same thing that you already confessed this morning, when you said, I despise myself because of my sin, that I humble myself before God. The reason for God's grace towards you is his pitying mercy, It is the source and fount of the grace that God shows us when he sets his love upon us and welcomes us. The gospel is God's promise of life as an act of divine grace proceeding from his mercy and then resulting in peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. It is um, peace or, or reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God. Peace or reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God because Christ has died in your place. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father who gave his Son in your place so that you and I can have peace with God, so we can have peace of conscience like Paul and Timothy, even a peaceful outlook in the face of death because of the promise of life. The faith that that Paul will thank God for in Timothy is the same faith that is encapsulated in these first two verses. The promise of life as an act of grace proceeding from God's mercy through the gift of his own son resulting in peace. And then Paul is actually going to make the point that this gospel of verses 1 and 2 is the fulfillment of God's ancient promises. You see that in verse 3, where Paul identifies this faith that he proclaims with that of his forefathers, or his ancestors. A clear reference to the Old Testament saints who Paul does not view as having a different Savior, but as worshiping the same God as him. Paul rightly believes that the gospel of Christ that he proclaims and Timothy believes is the fulfillment of the promises made to his ancestors. One commentator says what his forefathers trusted in anticipation, Paul now trusts in fulfillment. Christianity and Judaism rightly understood are not two different religions, but two stages of one religion. With an unfolding revelation, the faith of the Old Testament is what the seed is to the flower, the, the foundation to the building, and the boy to the man. These are not two fundamentally different religions, but the one is the fulfillment of the other. Even as the Old Testament proclaimed that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Paul proclaims that that Savior has come. Even as God promised Abram that through his seed would come a blessing to all the families of the earth, Paul proclaims that seed has come. Even as God promised David that from his line would come a king whose kingdom would have no end, Paul proclaims that king has come. In fact, he'll say so explicitly in 2 verse 8. Paul does not view the Old Testament as being in competition with the new, but as inseparably connected like a seed is To the flower. The gospel that Paul proclaims is the fulfillment, the the end or, or telos, the goal to which all of the Old Testament was moving. Which is significant because Paul's opponents believe that he is anti Old Testament, anti Judaism. He's an apostate who had rejected the Old Testament scripture as they knew it. And so Paul makes the point that he has not abandoned the God of his fathers and the religion in which he'd been raised, but he persists in the same faith of his fathers. They looked forward to the Messiah. He now worships that same Messiah, not in disloyalty to his fathers, but in fulfillment of their faith. The gospel that Paul proclaims is the gospel of both the Old and New Testament which is actually what we see in verse 5 as well, where uh, Paul says that Timothy's faith has been nurtured by uh, that of his mother and grandmother. This is the same thing that he'll say in 3 verse 15, that Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings of the Old Testament from childhood, which are able to make him wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. There and, and here, Paul is making the point that Timothy's godly Jewish mother and grandmother had raised him on those scriptures even before they'd heard of Christ, instructing him from the Old Testament of the Christ to come. Calvin says, though the gospel and our Lord Jesus were not fully known, these women had genuine faith because they waited for the promised Messiah. Even though uh, he had not yet been revealed in their life, they were content to live in hope and to call upon God until he would fulfill his promise. Like Simeon in the Gospel of Luke, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And so they taught their son and their grandson of the Christ to come. We see in verse 3 and in verse 5 that Paul's gospel is not in opposition to the Old Testament faith but the very end toward which it was moving, fulfillment of all God's promises. And so as Christians, we don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, as one well-known pastor has advised, but, but we study them as able to make us wise unto salvation, The vows that you've just made include a commitment to both the New and the Old Testament as the true doctrine of salvation. As you give yourself to study them both, seeing the beautiful tapestry that God has woven together from Genesis to Revelation, from that first gospel promise to its final fulfillment. You don't have, as some do, an allergy to the Old Testament, but you study it to see the revelation of this gospel even in the Garden. The patriarchs, the prophets, the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the law, how God is everywhere revealing the gospel of his son. The promise of life as an act of divine grace proceeding from his mercy and resulting in peace. That's the gospel content of Timothy's faith revealed in both Old and New Testament for which Paul gives thanks. And for which we give thanks in you that God has granted you to see the beauty of this gospel in every page of his word. That's the second thing that we want to uh, give thanks for, not just the gospel content of this faith, but that it is a God-given faith. Don't you notice those opening words in verse 3 where Paul says, I thank God. He's about to go on to describe the nature of, of Timothy's faith. So why is it that in speaking of Timothy's faith, he's, he's thanking God? Well, the reason that he's, he's thanking God is, is because Timothy didn't create this faith in himself. Timothy believes in in everything that Paul has just articulated, and the the promise of life as an act of grace, of the Father's gift of his Son, and fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, but Timothy did not come to believe this through his own power and wisdom. Remember what Jesus says to Peter, and in fact, we'll uh, look at it this afternoon from Matthew 16, "'Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven.'" As we confess in the canons of Dort, the fact that some of us who are called to the gospel do come must not be credited to us as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who have equal or sufficient grace to believe. But it must be credited to God who calls us, who grants us faith and repentance, and who brings us into the kingdom of his son that we might declare his wonderful deeds not boasting in ourselves, but in him. That's what the canons of Dort are saying there. It's, it's saying the fact that you have um, responded in faith to the gospel is not because you are wiser and smarter and more pious and more godly and more righteous than your unbelieving neighbors, but it's because of God's sovereign grace working in your heart by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is teaching that, that same truth of faith that dwells in Timothy, of which he's going to speak in the next few verses, and the faith that dwells in each of you is not because you have distinguished yourselves as better or as smarter or more pious, but because God, in his sovereign mercy, that that pitying mercy of verse 2, has drawn you by his Spirit to faith in his Son. And so this is a day that leaves no room for boasting. Just as the fact that um, Timothy is is receiving this letter from Paul leaves no room for boasting. But the work of faith in both Timothy and in you must be credited to God's divine mercy and must then lead us with Paul in verse 3 to give thanks. And so we do. As a congregation, as we prayed earlier, we thank God for having included you in his church to receive the many blessings of his covenant community and for adding the special grace of his Holy Spirit so that of your own will, you have come today to profess the truth and to consecrate your lives to his service. As a congregation, we thank God concerning you for the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus, that was the, the language that we read earlier from the form, not the the grace of God and the faith that you have worked up in yourself, but the the faith that's been given to you. We thank God we, we read from the form for working faith in your heart so that you desire to publicly profess that faith in the presence of God and of his church. We're led in very words of that. Form that we read to see what a gracious thing it is for God to work this faith in your hearts leaving no room for boasting but only for grateful praise this faith of which Paul speaks is a God-given faith a gospel faith next a genuine faith let me see in verse 5 where Paul says of Timothy that he is reminded of his sincere faith that word sincere means without hypocrisy. One lexicon says of this word in this context that it speaks of a faith whose exterior profession in word and deed translates the allegiance of the heart and conviction of the spirit. That again, I think that's a helpful way of putting it. It speaks of a faith whose exterior profession in word and deed translates the allegiance of the heart and conviction of the spirit. That's what Paul says of Timothy's genuine or sincere faith. It is an accurate translation of the allegiance of his heart and the conviction of his spirit. I pray that's true of each one of you today, that the exterior profession you've just made is an accurate translation of the allegiance of your heart and the conviction of your spirit. Herman Bovink and his This excellent book on profession of faith says that it is not a detached, self-contained act that takes place once and is then uh, done forever, where a few weeks before you prepare yourself for this hour and then everything's forgotten and life goes on as if nothing's happened, such a profession would be wholly unworthy of the name. He says, "A profession of faith is not something that stands by itself with no connection to what precedes or follows it, but daily profession precedes this one-time public profession, which is then followed by profession throughout the whole of your life, born of a deep, firm conviction of the heart." He says, "Otherwise it is a useless lip service, an external repetition of the mouth and a hypocritical act that is not worthy of the name not take the lord's name in vain but let what comes out of your mouth proceed from the overflow of your heart a sincere genuine faith a sincere genuine faith that manifests itself in a number of ways and one of the ways that we see it manifest in timothy is in his love for paul Uh, Paul will will go on at the end of chapter 1 in verses 15 to 18 to describe how many have turned away from him and deserted him. But one evidence of grace in Timothy is his love for God's servants. We see something of the filial bonds that the gospel brings in, in Paul and Timothy's love for one another, where Paul speaks of himself as remembering Timothy night and day in prayer. Or he he recalls how Timothy was weeping at Paul's departure. And he speaks of, they long to see each other so that they might be filled with joy. This is the kind of of gospel culture that flows from gospel doctrine. This is the kind of of communion with the saints that true faith births. Verse two, family bonds, where Paul is able to call Timothy, his beloved son, In the faith. Do you see that the corporate nature of the confession that you've just made, that it binds you together with God's people? In relationships that it hopefully mirrors something of the love between Paul and Timothy in verse 4. This is the communion of the saints which also, as Calvin points out, includes certain authority structures where Paul, in calling Timothy his son, implies his apostolic authority. And Calvin says he seeks to present Timothy as an example to all believers, exhorting us to allow the gospel to bring us in quiet submission to God and to greet his fathers, those who preach it to us. He says, if we want to be considered children of God, we must come in obedience to his word and listen carefully to those who preach the gospel to us, submitting meekly and reverently to what we are told in God's name. This relates not only to the fourth vow that you may that you'll submit to the government and um, ad- admonitions of the church, but it also relates to the charge that you were given just a few moments ago to continue in your profession by the diligent use of the means of grace. Both of these, that vow that you made to submit to the government of the church and that charge you were given to um, make diligent use of the means of grace obligate you to sit under the word and the ordained officers that God places over you to receive that word with meekness, love, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Paul and Timothy's genuine faith led to a culture of of gospel fellowship and gospel submission in the same way that it's meant to do that in you. We see from these verses that a sincere faith leads to a Christian life that's lived not in isolation, nor shunning the authority structures that God has put in place, but continuing steadfastly in the fellowship of the saints under the word of God preached to you by the officers whom he appoints. This is the kind of genuine faith the gospel produces. Now, Paul thanks God for Timothy's genuine, God-given gospel faith, as we thank God also for yours. And then finally, he mentions uh, one more thing in verse 5, that this genuine, God-given gospel faith is also a generational faith. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells also in you. They had raised Timothy on the Old Testament scriptures from infancy in such a way that uh, Calvin said he might suck godliness along with his milk. And by so doing... Their faith and the promise of life was, was passed on to him. This is the ordinary way that God is pleased to work from generation to generation. Mothers teaching their children, grandmothers, fathers teaching their children the word of God and the gospel of grace. We see in this passage the tremendous worth of the Christian family One commentator says, Paul is here inviting us to ponder the singularly powerful impact that mothers and grandmothers have on their children. Though the work of child-rearing can be mundane and thankless, though it has has in many ways fallen out of favor in the society in which we live, the seeds that these women planted grew into an oak of righteousness, righteousness, the boy that they raised became the man who the Apostle Paul relied on in his most desperate hour. The impact that godly Christian parents have on their children cannot be overstated. This was true of Timothy, and it's true, I trust of each of you who have stood before us here today that the faith you have just professed was first taught you by your parents many cases, I trust by your mother. Once we're taught here to give thanks for godly mothers who have poured their prayers and energy into teaching us the word. And for moms, this is an encouragement to you in your task that God, by, by even putting these women's name in Scripture, dignifies the work of motherhood and gives you a place of honor. Encourages that your labor is not in vain. As with Paul, we we give thanks not only for the faith that has been professed here today, but the faith that has been passed on faithfully from one generation to the next. As we sang at the beginning of our service from Psalm 145, or as we sang from Psalm 78, the parents who have not hidden from their children all the wonders of the Lord, but told the coming generation of his might and glorious works, so that faith And the promise of life as an act of God's grace proceeding from his mercy and resulting in his peace might pass from one generation to the next. And uh, Timothy's and James's and Jesse's and Josie's and Sophia's and Jacob's and Dylan's and Lauren's might continue to be raised up to carry this gospel of grace to yet another generation so that this same faith might dwell in them also. May God be pleased to continue to pass on this precious, precious gospel heritage from one generation to the next. And may we give him thanks. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesse and Josie and James, for Sophia, and Jacob and Dylan and Lauren. With Paul, we thank you for the sincere faith that you have worked in your children and pray that you'd give them grace to continue steadfastly in the profession they've just made. That you would bind them together to the body to which they belong. You would give them an earnest desire to diligently make use of the means of grace with meekness, love, and readiness of mind submitting to those you've placed over them that you would make us as a people, as a congregation here at Emmanuel, as diligent as Paul in praying for them and giving thanks for them. Lord, we pray that you would also encourage those mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers among us, by what we've just heard of the importance of the work that you've entrusted to them, We pray that by your grace, it would bear this kind of fruit, of a sincere and genuine faith, born not of hypocrisy, but of hearts that have been captured by the grace, mercy, and peace which proceed from the promise of life in Christ Jesus our Savior. It is in his name we pray.